I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, let me press record. I always have to kind of take an actor moment. Me, me, me. That kind of thing. <laughs> Mommy made me mess my hands. Pop. 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 Okay, here we go. In three, two, one. <laughs> I'm sorry, just thinking about Ian saying, pop. We <laughs> sent Tim around open. the bend. I think we should open. Logan, leave that in. <laughs> but first, I will release the fairy queen. Be as thou was wont to be. See as thou was wont to see. Diane's bud or Cupid's flower had such force and blessed power. Now, my Titania, wake you, my sweet queen. My Oberon, what visions have I seen? Methought I was enamored of an ass. There lies your love. How came these things to pass? Oh, how my eyes do loathe his visage now! Hey, everyone, welcome to The Play's The Thing. After I started laughing at Ian <laughs> mocking my actorly get ready, you were hearing <laughs> Titania. That was Dame Judy Dinch as Titania. Waking Dench. up with the thought, this terrible thought, me thought I was enamored of an ass, <laughs> she says to Oberon. Um, I am joined again by Heidi White, by Ian Andrews, by Emily Andrews. Welcome back, everybody, to Act Four of A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's good to be here. It's going to be good. Delighted We're to be already here. on fire. <laughs> yeah, We're yeah, already yeah. On We're fire. rolling right now. We really are. I think part of the reason that we're rolling so quickly is because, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the hangover act. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Everyone is waking up and they're like, I, I, what just happened? I 
fell in love with an ass yesterday. That's <laughs> what I'm telling you. I regret everything that happened. I think last I regret night. everything that happened. I don't remember all of it. That concerns <laughs> yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. My memory is a bit spotty. I, I, this has never happened to me at all. <laughs> yeah. I can't relate. I've only heard. I've heard. Yeah. yeah. I've seen I, it I thought on about TV. opening with that question like, hey, does this act seem familiar at all to you guys? You know? And then I was like, ah. Uh, I don't think I should ask that question. It's a bit, yeah, we're getting into personal foibles, et cetera. Our squandered youths. Our squandered youths. Exactly. So, you guys, this act, act three, mischief, all sorts of mischief, Puck and Oberon, they're sprinkling fairy juice on everybody's eyes and people are falling in love with the wrong people. Most Notably, Titania falls in love with Bottom. Bottom, who is just the silliest, goofiest character, turns into a horse's ass, and Titania is in love with him at the opening of this act. She pampers him, he falls asleep with her, and then Oberon tells Puck that, you know what? This whole charade has been worth it. I got the boy back from Titania. Which, by the way, I'm just going to interrupt myself for a second. Why does that happen off stage? Why does the problem that we've been oh, seeking to solve happen off stage, right? Oh, like this whole thing happened because Oberon is like, I'm going to get my revenge on Titania. She's stolen this boy from me. I want to get the boy back and I'm going to sprinkle fairy dust on her and she's going to fall in love with the wrong person. And then he finds out, Oh, actually, Titania gave the boy back to me, and it, we never even get to see it. it did that surprise you guys? No, it, surprise is the wrong word, but I noticed it as well. And what I thought, I mean, you just said it. It's about the revenge, not about the boy, right? It's right, a power struggle. Right. And I mean, I, Heidi was saying something about this in the last episode, I think, um, that an Elizabethan audience wouldn't have seen the power struggle between husband and wife in exactly the same way. Um, I thought that was a really good comment. But be that as it may, it's about the revenge. Not about the boy, I think. The boy is the MacGuffin. You guys <laughs> know the term MacGuffin? Yep. Yes. The boy is definitely the MacGuffin. Do you guys think it's problematic, though? Because I I understand what Heidi is saying, and I even agree that there would have been a recognized hierarchy and structure in the marriage. But the reason Titania gives us at the beginning for keeping the boy is that she made a promise to his mother who was dying and and like there was this, I don't know, it's a very emotional situation that she feels responsible for taking care of this boy. So that there's some legitimacy behind her claim. And it feels a little uh shady what Oberon is doing here. And not only that, I agree with you, but also the resolution of this, um, I don't like Oberon very much, to be frank with you. It seems a little mean-spirited. These are two of the questions that I wanted to ask you guys. Number one is our esteem of Oberon. Has it been a little bit overdone in the first three acts? And my second question is, is Titania a little less clever than we thought she was? Is, but let's start with the first one. Have we given a sort of moral diligence to Oberon that he does not deserve? Emily, you you kind of think so? I do kind of think so. Yeah. I would be interested to hear what Heidi has to say about yeah. that, though. I think that 
Shakespeare liberally peppers his plays with troubling moral quandaries that get sometimes a little bit lost in the delight, uh, especially within the comedies. And I'm thinking mm. of a couple of specific examples. Um, Malvolio in Twelfth Night, his punishment far outweighs his crime. Great. Absolutely um, right. Uh, the leftover male character, such as Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, who begins the whole play with, forsooth, I know not why I am so sad. And he ends the mm -hmm. play with le with greater sadness than he began it. Yeah. Um, whereas there's all these married people and everything, but everything's so happy, so happy. Even Shylock's forced conversion in Merchant of Venice is morally troubling, even right. within its late medieval slash Renaissance context. And so I, Shakespeare is unafraid of allowing moral complexity, even within the comedies and maybe even especially mm. within the comedies. Uh, and, and I think that the way that the Titania Oberon conflict, and even with Aegeus uh, in Act Four, the way he still wants to force his daughter to marry, like there's the way that Hippolyta marries Theseus, even though she has been one with a sword, and it's never clear whether she truly loves her husband. If everybody is rejoicing in this in this match, like there hmm. there is a there are plenty of troubling elements in Shakespeare, um, which I think are put there on purpose. So I, I, I think it's a mistake to judge Shakespeare for it, but it's right yep. to look at the state of a fallen world, even within the comedic kind of high and deep comedy. Yep, mm. I think that's really, that's good. Uh, he doesn't give Titania, Hermia, Helena, or Hippolyta a voice to resist or rebel against what has happened to them and i know a lot of people would read that as chauvinism but i think right that it's actually intended to trouble us i think so because shakespeare loved his strong women and uh he really it's the male characters that have to learn and grow in almost all of the comedies um and that they are often portrayed as lesser than the women um and so i don't think that shakespeare uh, wanted to dominate women uh, within his plays. Um, although we do have to understand within the cultural context that they see femininity and masculinity and hierarchy very differently than we do. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I definitely think that the troubling elements are there on purpose to give us pause and to make us feel a bit uncomfortable with the state of the world. Well said. Second question. Titania kind of gets fooled. And I, I know we shouldn't cast aspersions. She was, you know, because it's fairy dust. Right. Yeah. <laughs> She's a goddess. And also it's like fairy dust. But I, I did have a sense that she's so clever in the first three acts. And then she kind of falls in love with this ass. And then she's telling over Oberon, I can't believe what visions I have seen. Um, are we meant to think less of her or are we meant to just think, oh, fairy dust hijinks? I'm all of, I'm all a flutter about it. I don't really know because we've been talking about the green world. Yeah. And, and this might be um, a little too pat, but it's shorthand in some ways for the presence of the divine in the natural, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're going out there and it's chaos, but not necessarily negative chaos. It's the kind mm -hmm. of chaos where things are put right that were wrong to begin with. 
even if we can't see exactly how that works. Um, and so that makes me want to look at the fairy dust and look at the kind of love that it produces as something that is divine, except so clearly it isn't in this play, right? Mm. It's a, it's a pale imitation of whatever real love is. And maybe we don't have a verdict from Shakespeare on that in this play yet, but we've been talking about this question. What is real love? What does it look like? And it doesn't look like Titania enamored of an ass. And that's what the fairy dust gets us. Um, so I, I don't know if I have a great answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a great answer myself. I blame it on the fairy dust. <laughs> well, Heidi is right. Um, Titania queen. Yeah, of course. Also though, also um, spouse. And I say spouse mm. instead of wife specifically because um, married people everywhere know that the kind of infighting that occurs in even the happiest of marriages is seldom all that reasonable. Right. So I don't know that we have that our opinion of Titania has to diminish in order for us to acknowledge that the that the spat was silly to begin with. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Emily. I think well, I was just thinking, I think it's really powerful to look at it from bottom's perspective. And if you do allow that she is a goddess and that she has been given eyes to see him in a different way. There's a really beautiful gloss on Bottom's speech in the Arden edition. Do you guys mind if I read it? Please. Um, it's on the passage where he's talking about how he won't be able to express what has happened to him, to his friends. And he says, the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen, man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. And obviously, uh, as the editor says, this is a a jumbling of first Corinthians two nine, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, neither have uh, we entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Mm-hmm. And he says the next verse after that, the 10th verse of second, uh, first Corinthians two is for the spirit searches all things, yea, the bottom of God's secrets, uh, the deep things of God. So the bottom, bottom <laughs> of God's secrets is for those who love him. I just think that's absolutely beautiful. Hmm. That that's I, what the dream means. I do too. This is the kind of ultimate question that I wanted to ask about this act. It's about bottom. I mean, ironically, this oafish character is the wisest character in the entire play. It seems like by the end, it's not Oberon. It's not Titania. But yeah, this speech is... So wonderful. And Bottom is the butt of every joke. And we're going to really laugh at him in Act 5. He's the ass of every joke, I should have said. (laughs) Um, And we're going to laugh even more at him, although kind of by design, when the play is performed in Act 5. So... Actually, I I would love to play, Emily. I love what you just read. I want to read... I want to play a little audio from that last speech by bottom let's listen to it and i've got a question for you coming out of this audio i have had a most rare vision i have had a dream past the wit a man to say what dream it was man is but an ass if he go about to expound this dream methought I was, there is no man can tell what. Methought, I was, 
and methought I had. But man is but a patch fool if he'll have to say what methought I had. The eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream. It shall be called Bottom's Dream because it hath no bottom. And I will sing it. That was Bottom. I have had a dream past the wit of man to say what dream it was. Man is but an ass if he go about to expound this dream. Heidi, have we just learned that Bottom is our comedic fool Mm. along the lines of maybe Lear's fool, kind of providing the wise commentary on the play and the lovers and the broken and reunited romances? Yeah, I think, you know, Shakespeare has a a great love of, of fools. Um, and often gives them very profound wisdom. And I think also often really profound grief we see in in many of the fools in Shakespeare. Um, I'm thinking in As You Like It, right, Jacques? Like there multiple mm. fools have this like weight, this gravitas to them, but Bottom's not like that in the sense that he's just he's comic with some flashes of insight mm-hmm. and and this speech is one of them and i really love i love emily what you just commented and thank you for bringing that into the conversation and i was thinking as you were speaking about that very famous line it will be called bottom stream because it hath no mm-hmm. bottom like there's this there there's Bottom is often childish, but he has also these moments of being childlike in which the kingdom of heaven is given to the heart of a child. And this is one of them um, in which the, it's only the the, the innocence um, of, of children and fools that can really approach humbly the, the, the deep wisdom of, of, of eternity. Um, and, and so I think we see that here. Um, I, I also think Bottom is still intended to be seen for most of the play as an ass because of the topsy-turvy nature of uh, of the hierarchies that are upended. I don't think we're meant to see him as having this like gravitas or wisdom throughout the whole play. He really has to be a fool um, and in order to understand, I think, what... what um, what's happening in the green world that he is an unworthy object of Titania's love. Yes. And we have to continue to see him like that, which I think is why he's given this wonderful childlike, innocent, wise speech. But then in act five, we're going to see him once again as entirely comic. And I think Mm -hmm. we have to end the play with that in order to kind of get to this heart of the upending of reality that's used to reorder reality that happens in the green world. I love that. I love that. And also it makes me somewhat repent my earlier comment about what real love is in the play, because it is a given thing, right? Um, Not an earned thing. Not an earned thing. And in that way, bottom sort of becomes emblematic of all of the men in the play. Yeah. I kind of think so too. (laughs) Beloved by women who are from the green world, or at least more connected to it than we men are. And so he plays, he plays the fool like we all do. And the kind of pampering he gets from Titania is, uh, well, it's more than we all can expect as bumblers, <laughs> as men, right? But maybe there's some, maybe there's an element of that in it as well. 
I love this. I until I read that loss, I had never thought of bottom's name as meaning like the depths or like the secret mm-hmm. things of God, you know, the the heart of the, the thing. Um, but I think Heidi's right that it has to be both. What we find in God's heart of hearts is the ass, right? That's where he keeps us. Like that's where mm-hmm. he keeps the the little uh ridiculous things of the world. That's pretty. <laughs> um, the conclusion of our act points us toward what we know to expect in Act 5, which is marriage, or in this case, marriages. So, reunited, Titania and Oberon charm Bottom and the four lovers into a deep sleep with music, right? They fall asleep again. And now we see, for the first time since Act 1, Theseus and Hippolyta. They're accompanied by Aegeus and others. They've come to celebrate May Day in the woods. Of course, this is like going to be the setup for the weddings. And they discover these four lovers asleep and they wake them up. So Lysander now is back in love with Hermia. Demetrius loves Helena for the first time in his right mind. Or no, just for the first time. When Lysander reveals how he and Hermia fled to Athens, Aegeus begs Theseus to punish him. But Demetrius announces that he's fallen in love with Helena. Theseus overrides Aegeus and decrees that everyone is going to marry. Um, I want to pause here. Theseus questions Lysander and Demetrius, and these, these are the lines. I pray you all, stand up. I know you two are rival enemies. How comes this gentle con- concord in the world that hatred is so far from jealousy to sleep by hate and fear, no enmity? So, for me, Theseus raises this interesting question. Is there hatred, the hatred between Lysander and Demetrius, real? If so, why didn't they kill each other? And maybe most importantly, what power does magic have over their hatred? It's a, but off the air, we were, before we started recording, we were all commenting on how short this act is. Um, and act three is one of Shakespeare's longer act threes. Um, and act four is very short. I don't know if it's the shortest, but it's short. It's only two scenes and both of them are easy and quick. And I I wonder if that's intentional. Um, in uh, I wonder if the form is intended to, to um, kind of carry a weight of the content that, and there, there's this complex disordering, right? And then a very quick reordering mm-hmm. uh, after the medicine, so to speak, of magic is applied. Um, and, and I think that kind of speaks to your question, maybe, Tim, that I'm going to read a a line from Hippolyta, who is also one of the wisest characters in the play. Um, She says, uh, "She's this is scene two, and she says, I was with Hercules and Cadmus once, when in a wood of Crete they'd bay the bear with hounds of Sparta. Never did I hear such gallant chiding, for besides the groves, the skies, the fountains, every region near seem all one mutual cry. I never heard so musical a discord, Mm. such sweet Mm. thunder. And she's describing a hunt and the, and then, 
but and the hunt itself, the violence of the hunt is this musical discord. And I think act three is our discord and act four is our crescendo, right? It's our, it's, it's, it's the, it's the rest, right? That it's, it's easy to unravel once the medicine has been applied. We disorder our own lives then, right? We bring all of this disorder. And then once this, 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 musical discord, this deceptive medicine, right, uh, which is itself a paradox, is applied, then the right people love each other. And then we have, when we have a harmony, and and I think Act 4 needed to be a harmonious act in order to kind of get to this question of the musical or get to this resolution of the musical discord. And I think that might speak to your question, I, I think it's so insightful, Heidi. And I, we've made a couple of references to Merchant of Venice already. And I'm thinking that this play has a kind of thematic unity with Merchant of Venice in that Act 5 of Merchant of Venice are this pair of lovers that are kind of sitting out in front of the palace and they're ruminating about the stars and the relationship of how the stars are organized in harmonies that they love each other, that they mimic the love of God or are actually moved by the love of God. A very Dante-esque, a very medieval vision of the cosmos. And I just want to point out, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Merchant of Venice probably were written in the same year or maybe like a year apart. So we can see our author kind of maybe imagining, you know, how love harmonizes the universe. In this case, the right lovers are conjoined with each other, you know, through magic. Um, the wrong lovers are separated and everything is being put right through this kind of divine agency. And we, uh, we we kind of talk about it in terms of fairies and fairy dust, and that might sound a little bit flippant, but I think in the broader, pardon the pun, constellation of medieval of the medieval cosmos, it's not flippant. It's not um, light. The 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 fairy antics and the divine agency is very purposeful and uh, not happenstance. Yeah, I, guess is the best I think way to so. Say. And I'm going to stop talking after I make this one final comment. Um, I, <laughs> I hope why, you don't, I, don't. I hope you don't. I don't want to dominate, but I think that maybe that also goes back to Titania's maybe naivety that we were talking about earlier. That it is, it there is the troubling element of the boy, and I think that's there on purpose. And I think we're not supposed to feel completely settled about that. But I think her grievance had to have some legitimacy as well in order to, for us to respect what she did, right? So that I do not think that Titania and Oberon are meant to just be mischievous comic characters. I think they are supposed to have a weight of seriousness to them. And, and I think that then the, she gives way so easily in act four because it's, this is the way it's supposed to be. Not Mm -hmm. because she's naive, but because She's mm. settling back into reality. And um and 
And how she got there doesn't really matter. The point, even if she was deceived, it was a deception that was intended to bring forth the truth, right? There's the paradox of it. And and I also think my last, my final, final comment is that that is why there's so much emphasis in this plan, love being blind, um, that we are given love. We are given to love, but we are given to love through providence, the right and proper object. And we can easily be blinded one way or the other. Uh, and and there's external forces that put that right and we submit to them. Hmm. I like that. That image that you read, the uh, Hippolyta's meditation, uh, the musical discord, I think it's really cool that it's in, in the context of a hunt. It seems there's something of the hound of heaven in that image. Hmm. Yeah, what that line made me think of, uh, <laughs> shocker, is Tolkien um, the opening <laughs> the opening passage of the Silmarillion? His creation of the world, the way he describes it, like Lewis is singing, right? The world is sung into being. But but what interests me about this comparison right now is that every singer, um, every angel attendant to the God of Tolkien's imaginary world, um, is only made aware of their own part, and they can't hear the whole until the music of God himself, until his own theme unifies it all. And, and they're made aware in the act of creation of how all of the strands that each of them are individually singing are woven together. Um, and so I, I like what Heidi says about, about Titania's um, role in this. It, it is a role that is right and good. And the action of Oberon maybe is even dignified in that he doesn't say, ha, you actually <laughs> were in love with an ass, right? <laughs> he says, oh, what a difficult dream. Welcome back. And that, um, that sounds to me like the kind of divine figure that oversees all of our individual melodies and weaves them together for good in the end. I want to make a little book recommendation for people who are curious about this discussion. Uh, C.S. Lewis's discarded image is, is short, maybe 150, 200 pages essay. <laughs> I can't believe I just said a short essay. Um, it's a short <laughs> discussion on the medieval cosmos, the medieval model. And it's well worth your time. And I think you would, if you are a lover of Shakespeare, you will really benefit from kind of like having a vision of what the medieval cosmos, how it was organized, the harmonies associated, et cetera, et cetera. It is very, very different. Their vision of the cosmos is very, very different than ours. Um, and I can't help but think that maybe Copernicus and Galileo, not Galileo because he's not really active as of the writing of this play, but Copernicus precedes the writing of this play by a couple of hundred years. And there's the beginning, historically speaking, of the collapse of the medieval model, which is, as we, we keep using this word, it's a very harmonious vision of the universe. And it's one that C.S. Lewis lauds and kind of says, yeah, I wish, you know, like, I think this is the, a more beautiful model. And I think there's, a, there's an interesting thing because we all are in the classical world. We all have, how do I say this? There's a kind of hope that there might be a unity behind all of our subjects of education, 
the way that there would be for the medievals. Right now, we we have broken up education into disciplines and have gotten so specific and have like brought in such levels of expertise on mathematics and language, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a real lack of a vision of a uniting theme, motif, metaphor, reality behind all these different things. And in reading these comedies, I'm thinking of Midsummer Night's Dream and I'm thinking of Merchant of Venice, makes me long for that vision that I've never really lived in, you know, this kind of vision of a harmonious cosmos. Hmm. I'm feeling nostalgic is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's look forward, Heidi. You have more to say on this than I do. No, I, I don't I, want you to bite your tongue. I'm not. I'm just affirming that I think that this is that's a great a great book recommendation. There's also one called The Elizabethan Word Picture, which is very good and similar. I mean, it speaks specifically about Shakespeare and the and medieval cosmology in Shakespearean in the Shakespearean canon. So along with the discarded image, if anyone else is interested um, in doing a little further digging into, um, into that way of thinking and understanding this kind of different cosmology than what we have, that's another great recommendation. You guys, next week is Act 5, our closing act. I would love to know what should we be looking for as we read or watch Act 5 of A Midsummer Night's Dream? Everyone just wants to say, a wedding. Weddings. 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 There's one other thing that we're going to say also. The most hilarious play within a play in the entire Shakespearean <laughs> Ever. canon. Ever. <laughs> it's the best one. Ever. <laughs> and it's so short. It is the most pithy play within a play also. It's, it's just hits you hard. Yeah. It's great. It's really fun. And every time I've seen it staged, I've laughed out loud which you don't always laugh out loud when you know it's coming. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. just mm -hmm. good. It's just fun. Any of the things we, could, we should look for in Act 5? Any of the things we should prepare ourselves for? I, I want to know what's going to happen to Oberon and to Tanya. They've made up, right? They have peace again. Love right. is between them. Do we get anything else from them? That's my, that's my mm -hmm. curiosity. I'll just repeat my comment from last episode. Are we going to get any angry young women? I, I know. I find it a little <laughs> hard to believe that Helena was just like, okay, Demetrius likes cool. me. He loves me now. Good now. <laughs> Never mind that cool. I ran around in the woods all night and he was repeatedly sending me away to be eaten by bears. Come on. Yeah. We'll, oh, we'll. see if we get that, Emily. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cross my fingers. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful, too. but I'm plagued with doubt. I want to thank everyone for joining us for Act 4 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. This podcast is hosted by the Circe Institute, C-I-R-C-E Institute.org is where you can find out more, both about the classical Christian education renewal, and I'm sure that you can find plenty about um, this medieval vision of the cosmos and the unity and harmony of the spheres if you dig deeply. I encourage you to visit circeinstitute.org. Well, thank everyone for joining us and to Heidi, Emily, and Ian. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to seeing you guys again next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.